Matthew 11, 1 through 19, as we'll see that Jesus, the promised king, is the friend of sinners. The promised king is the friend of sinners. So I'll begin reading in Matthew 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Well, as we sit here this morning, one thing we share, and we don't share all of them in common, but is memory, a sense of something that's happened in the past, and there are some things that have happened in your past that seem really clear in retrospect that didn't seem very clear at the time. So for instance, uh, when I was a kid, it seemed like a really good idea to have a fight in my front yard with a slingshot and real rocks with my brother and sister. That seemed like a very reasonable thing to a 10-year-old boy, but looking back in retrospect, probably wasn't the best decision. Seems clear looking back on it now, but at the time seemed like a pretty good idea. Well, we sit here today, and for 2,000 years, the church has been pretty clear on the identity of Jesus, who he was, what he came to do, and what his mission was. But you can imagine in the first century, that answer wasn't quite so clear. And so there's a man named John the Baptist, and John sits in prison, and he's wondering who Jesus is. Now, John sits in prison, and he is in a prison in a place called Machiris. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but if you see on this map here, Jesus' ministry, most of his ministry centers where? In the north part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. If you travel all the way down south in this map, you see the Dead Sea there at the bottom. It's kind of the long body, and if you look just to the right there, you see a town, a place called Machiris. Now, Machiris is a, a fortress built by Herod on, on top of a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And so what we have here is kind of an aerial picture of, of the archaeological uh, ruins of this place, Machiris. 
Now, it was a pretty strategic place, and John is placed in prison here, and uh, this place has a pretty cool view of the Sea of Galilee. So it kind of sits up there. It's very hard to approach, which makes sense. If you have a fortress, you don't want people to uh, get into it easily. Well, John, as you can see from this, is quite a ways from Jesus, but he apparently has disciples traveling along with Jesus as Jesus goes around, and these disciples are bringing him reports about everything that Jesus does. Well, he hears about this, and he's kind of wondering, Jesus, are you really the one? At some level, John is struggling with doubt and questioning on Jesus' identity, and so he asks Jesus an honest question. He says, are you the one that we seek? We've just finished an extended section of Jesus' teaching in chapter 10. And now we travel with Jesus as he goes teaching and preaching in their cities. Well, there's a part of us that's surprised that John the Baptist is the one asking this. Why is that? Well, if you travel back a few chapters in Matthew, you find John in a river baptizing folks. Jesus comes, he baptizes Jesus, and what happens? A dove, the Spirit descends like a dove from heaven on him. A voice from heaven speaks, the Father speaks, and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And now John asks, Are you really the one? So there's, there's a part of us that's surprised that after all that John has, has seen, that he asks, Are you the Messiah, or do we still look for another? Well, Jesus doesn't answer with mere words. Rather, in verse 4, he says that his works demonstrate who he is. Go and tell John what you hear and see. So apparently these people have seen it firsthand. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Well, if you walk through the Gospels, there's one miracle that Jesus performs more than any other, and it's this miracle of giving sight to blind people. And so there's a part of us that's used to this, but one thing that we never see performed one time in the Old Testament, and we never see his disciples do one time, is giving sight to blind people, yet it's that that is prophesied of the Messiah. Isaiah 35 verse 5 says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So Jesus points to what he's done to answer John's questions. You see, it doesn't matter what your disease is or what your burden is, Jesus is powerful enough to address it. And even death itself has no power over him. The dead are raised up. So Jesus says that he is the promised Messiah, the king who rules perfectly, the prophet who always preaches God's truth, the priest who will fully, finally, and sacrificially intervene for God's people. John asks, is the Messiah here? And Jesus answers back, see for yourself. Can you doubt it based on what you were seeing? You see, the problem with Jesus' identity has never been one of evidence, because a relationship with Jesus is ultimately a matter of faith. In other words, God has clearly revealed his son Jesus to us. Will we receive him as God reveals him? All of us come here with not only memories, but different burdens, different needs that each of us has. Some of our needs are really clear, really obvious, and we can see them. Some of us has, have physical illnesses that other people see and know about and can pray about, but some of us have emotional burdens that no one knows about that we carry in with us. Some of us have very obvious financial burdens, maybe even ones that we've asked others to pray for, but others of us carry financial pressures that no one knows about. And there are others of us that carry hurts that are so close to our heart that no one but Jesus knows and no one but Jesus will ever know about that particular hurt. 
You see, each of us has needs that we can feel that we know about, but all of us have a need that sometimes goes unnoticed, and sometimes we don't even notice ourselves what we need. Well, as we read through the list of Jesus' miracles, there's one that is surprising. We were reading through this uh, this week as a family, and as we were walking through this, I was kind of, I was kind of, we were kind of doing answer and response. So the blind people do what? They see. Uh, the deaf people hear. The lame walk. The dead are raised. The poor are made rich. But that's not what he says, is it? It's surprising. In every other instance, Jesus addresses that person's obvious need, their felt need, what they can see. But he says the poor have good news preached to them. Now, if you're poor, you don't need someone preaching at you. You need money. But Jesus says the poor people have good news preached to them. And this is because material poverty isn't their greatest need. Their greatest need is the spiritual poverty of their hearts. And this morning, whether you have enough or not enough, whether you are in need of money or whether you have more than you can ever spend, we all have one thing in common, and that is that we are spiritually impoverished. We have a debt that we can never pay. You see, the gospel is a message for all people, including the poor and the downtrodden. But the greatest need that any of us has, especially those who have enough materially, is to recognize that spiritually we are bankrupt. You see, the God of the universe made all things good. Yet our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, sinned, and in sinning broke God's creation and the goodness of God's creation. And every person born into the world since then is like all of our children born into this nation. They are born in a deficit situation. And the deficit we all face is a debt that we can never pay. Romans 5.12 tells us that by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passes to all people. Romans 6.23 tells us, it uses economic financial terms to explain to us our relationship with God. It says, the wages for our sin is death. We're born into a situation, a debt we cannot pay. And yet Romans 5 also tells us that just as death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace through faith in Christ Jesus reign in life with him. You see, these, these needs that we feel are, are illness. Our brokenness, our financial needs, they're they're just pointers. They're real needs, but they point to our greatest need. And our greatest need is a personal relationship through faith with Jesus Christ. We all need peace with God through Christ. And God will give anyone who trusts Jesus that peace and full payment of their sin debt. And so if you're sitting here this morning, your greatest need is not the need maybe that you recognize. It is a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Would you turn from your sin and trust him? Seekers ask honest questions, even when the seeker is a great prophet. Now, there's another group of us here this morning. And there's a group maybe that we don't recognize our need, but there's another group of here, of us here that has recognized our need over and over again. And maybe at some level you struggle with, how can I actually be a child of God and doubt this way? Well, it's encouraging to me this morning that the person asking the questions, Jesus says, is the greatest man who ever lived until his time. And even he has doubts. He is no ordinary prophet. Well, there are all kinds of people coming to Jesus, but John is not an ordinary seeker. Crowds love a show. But Jesus says, while people may love the spectacle of John's ministry, they have missed the purpose of his ministry. 
Verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in soft clothing? Jesus is kind of being sarcastic here a little bit. He describes John as the exact opposite of what he is. Is, is John a man who wears nice, soft clothing? Now he's a man who wears uh, camel hair and eats locusts. He's very rough and, and poor. Is he a man who says, speaks uh, soft, easy words? Is he a reed shaken by the wind? No, John is a man noted for his courage and his boldness. He preached truth to Herod. He, he preached against Herod's adultery, and that's the reason he's sitting now in prison waiting to die. There is an essential quality to John's mission, and Jesus tells us about this in verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. So what's the job of a prophet? A prophet is to accurately speak God's words. Sometimes that's telling the future, but all the time it's telling him, telling people what God tells him to speak. People didn't go out in the wilderness to see a wimpy man in nice clothes. They go out to see a strange man preaching courageously. This prophet, though, isn't like other prophets. There have been prophets throughout history, and other prophets had important messages, but John's message is of the greatest importance. And to help us understand the ministry of this prophet, Jesus quotes from another prophet, Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, and Malachi comes at the tail end of a series of prophets, prophets who came and they preached repentance to, to Jerusalem, repentance to the people of Israel, but their message also was to help these people build, rebuild the temple. You see, not long before this, in 587 BC, a king named Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel with his, with his armies. And in doing this, he, he destroyed the temple in 587 B.C. And so for decades, God's people tried to rebuild the temple. Now, they'd never build one as great as that, but they rebuilt the temple. It took them 70 years to rebuild this temple. So when Malachi shows up, he, he, he comes and he preaches and he pr predicts that a messenger will come. You see, God's people thought that when they rebuilt the temple, the Messiah would come. The second temple meant that the Messiah, the Messianic age, the king is here, but he hadn't yet come. But Malachi comes and he says he is coming. Now, God's timing isn't what the people expected. So if you remember that date, 587 B.C., it takes 70 years, so somewhere around uh, you know, 520, 15, 20 years before Jesus comes, they're expecting him. Well, how many more centuries is that? Five centuries before he ever comes. And so Malachi is there predicting. God sent Malachi with a message telling them to repent. The Messiah is coming. And in Malachi 3, verse 1, the Lord makes this prediction. Behold, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. And then there's a second messenger. This is Jesus, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. God is faithful to his promise. The messenger will come, but what follows directly the book of Malachi? Well, if, if your Bible is like my Bible, if I look beyond the book of Malachi, there, there's a blank page here, a couple blank pages. Well, that's just a couple pages in our Bible, but that's 400 years where God says nothing. God doesn't speak. God's people wait. They look. They, they wonder, will the Messiah come? And for four centuries, the Messiah never comes. So when Jesus quotes here from Malachi, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger. He's saying that after four centuries of nothing, the time is here. 
John the Baptist is that messenger. Jesus is the messenger of the new covenant. The time is here. The king is here. Well, he says something pretty remarkable about John in verse 11. I'd say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. This is something that was typically done because John knows that Jesus is greater than all the other prophets, and because he has this ministry, his ministry is greater. Recently, I was walking through a Charleston uh, a parking lot here in Charleston, and as I was walking through, I was noticing this one uh, was particularly marked by potholes. Well, how did I know that? Because there were asphalt patches everywhere. And so someone had gone through, and rather than repaving the entire parking lot, they had kind of patched it up. Well, this was common when a dignitary is coming to a town. They'd send out the road crew. They'd say, guys, get things ready. We really don't want the emperor breaking his chariot wheel on the way into our city. So they'd go out and they'd patch all of the rolls, the, the holes. And so John the Baptist is basically, he's like, he's like the, 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 the preaching word, the, word, the road crew. He's there making the way smooth for Jesus to come in. John's greater than anyone who came before, but as great as he was, even the lowest person in Jesus' kingdom is greater than John. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we're so awesome. He's not saying that, that we inherently are greater than John is. Rather, he is saying that we have been given a more privileged position than anyone who came before. Verse 13 tells us that the law and the prophets prophesied before John, but now the Messiah is here. You see, Jesus' coming inaugurates a new age. Now, there may not be many here, but perhaps there are some who can remember a time uh, when you went to the theater and you saw pictures but heard no sound. Maybe there was an organist, you know, playing music along in Charlie Chaplin or some kind of early 20th century act, these silent black and white movies. And so you see a picture, but you don't experience kind of this full orb sensory experience. Well, that's different than those of you who expect to go to the new Marvel movie on April 26th or whenever it comes out here in a, in a few weeks. And, and that's a very different experience. If you went in and there was someone playing an organ and people in black and white dancing around on the screen, you'd take your money and leave. Like, you have a very different expectation. And what we see here is uh, Hebrews 10 tells us that the old covenant is like a shadow. It's like you can see it, but you can't experience it in full. But now we have experienced in person, in full flesh, the revelation of God in his son Jesus. Now we see him clearly. It's the difference between going uh, almost a century ago and going to the theater and your expectations in the old covenant and going now and what your expectations are. Your expectation is a different experience. The old covenant is the shadow. Jesus and the new covenant is the full color, true-to-life reality of God's work in the world. It's experiencing all of it. Brothers and sisters, we exist in this new covenant. The promises of God are ours in Jesus in a way that the old covenant could only imagine. So, of course, this should move us to worship, but let's just pause here for a moment. Imagine that you're a Jew in the first century. Maybe you're even a John the Baptist. And you've been waiting for 400 years to hear from God, and he's been silent. Will the Messiah ever come? I mean, John the Baptist is no ordinary Jew. He's the greatest prophet the world has ever seen. And yet, even he seems to struggle 
with doubt and impatience. Well, how is it that we struggle with God's sense of timing? A lot of times for me, it's with doubt and certainly with impatience. I mean, we set a course. We ask God to meet us on the way, and God doesn't act according to our expectations or our sense of timing. We want to be married. God says, wait. We want kids. God says, wait. We want a better marriage. God says, wait. We're like, God, you real? God, you there? God, you speaking? God, do you care? Are you even listening? You see, in times like this, we're caught between two realities. On the one hand, we exist in a broken world, and on the other hand, God is good, and we exist in this in-between. And in this in-between, it's hard, really hard to believe that God is both sovereign and good when I'm experiencing the reality of living in a broken world, when my life preaches to me louder than my faith. But God is faithful to his word, and God tells us we aren't recipients of the shadow, the black and white silent movie. We are recipients of the reality in Christ. The question is not whether God is good, but whether we can trust that God is good, even when in this in-between it doesn't feel like God is good. And one day in heaven, we're going to see it all clearly. It's going to be blasting away at us, but today we walk by faith, not by sight. So we cling to the character of God and cling to it by faith, even when our experience preaches to us something different. We are terrible with patience. If you don't believe me, go through cookout on the way home, and let's say it takes them 10 more minutes to get your order. Now, how do you feel then? Really impatient. Run to the deli next door, and you're sitting there waiting. Where's my food? You order a pizza. It tells you it'll be ready in 15 to 25 minutes, and it takes 35. And how do you feel? Impatient. We're we're not good. We're a microwave, immediate generation, and God says, wait. We say now. God says, wait. We say, give me, give me, give me. And God says, be patient. And the question for us is, can we trust the character of God, that God is working good in ways beyond what we can see in this moment? Well, for some people, no matter what God does, it's never enough because haters are going to hate. That's what we see in verses 16 to 19. Jesus deals with skeptics throughout his ministry. Now, maybe you don't know what this is like, but if you have children, you know what this is like. You know, it's time for breakfast, and you've got the, the pink bowls and the purple bowls and the orange bowls and the blue bowls. Dad, I want a blue bowl, but I'm hungry. I get the blue bowl. No, Dad, I want the orange bowl. In that moment, I'm experiencing what John and Jesus experienced. Or you get a little older and it's like, Dad, I want a cell phone. No, you can't have a cell phone. Dad, I need a cell phone now. No, you can't have a cell phone. Okay, here's a cell phone. Well, Dad, I need different apps on this cell phone. Well, no, we're going to keep it locked down and we will know what's going on in that cell phone. No, Dad, I don't want that. And that's exactly what Jesus dealt here with, but just with adults. And that's what he compares skeptics to in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. See, no matter what, these kids won't play along. No matter what, you say A, they say B. You say blue, they say red. When it's time to party, 
They sit off to the side and pout. When it's time to be sad, they resist that too. No matter what the message is, these people always want something else. You see, if Jesus and John the Baptist were coffee, you'd have very different coffee experiences. John is like, I don't know, black, straight, strong, piping hot coffee. He comes and he preaches a message of judgment. He says the spirit is going to come. He's going to reap you like a fire. He's going to harvest his harvest. And the harvest he's talking about is really bad because it's, it's God bringing in the harvest of judgment. I mean, it might wake you up, but it's too hot and strong to enjoy. Jesus, on the other hand, is, is a little bit different. He comes and, and there is a tone of judgment in his message, but he also comes and he preaches grace. And he says, look, while the bridegroom is here, it's a party. While I'm here, my people celebrate. And he comes and he comes and he preaches and he says, for those who don't receive me, there is judgment. But for all who do, there's grace. All are welcome here. Jesus is more like a double chocolate chip frappuccino. It's a little easier for it to go down. He comes in and he says, there's that note of coffee. There's that note of judgment, but it tastes a lot sweeter with grace. People didn't like the black coffee, strong, and now they complain, it's too sweet. I came, you didn't want to celebrate. John came and you didn't want to mourn. Grace really sweetens the message. John is a sober prophet. He's what's known as an ascetic, not an aesthetic, an ascetic. He's he's very strict and severe in his lifestyle. He denies himself to show how devoted he is to God. So people look at that and they're like, only a crazy man would be like that. He must be demon-possessed. But on the other hand, Jesus comes, he's eating and drinking. He's having a good time. And what do the people say? He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. Look at him. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. John's crazy because he's strict. Jesus is a drunkard because he's not strict. I mean, no matter what, these people won't be happy. Haters gonna hate. John's message is repent. Jesus' message is rejoice. People have issues with both. So Jesus closes with a proverb in verse 19. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. And this book ends a significant theme in this passage. How is it that John would know Jesus? By his deeds, by his works. And how is it that we know what wisdom is? By wisdom's works. You see, those who reject Jesus don't reject Jesus because Jesus has a deficiency. Rejecting Jesus merely reveals the deficiencies in our heart. Jesus is the friend of sinners. I heard a story this week about a woman in England who was in a very difficult uh, relationship. Uh, She had gotten in a relationship with someone of of another race, and in this relationship, uh, she had become pregnant out of wedlock and, uh, and had a child, and at some level in the community she was in was, was dealing with some ostracization. And she decided to go to church. She heard about a, a church not too far away, and they were having uh, meetings for women there. And she felt like she needed some help, and so, so she went to these meetings, and she went to the first one. She was helped and encouraged, so she went a second and a third time. And as she kept going, she, she was searching. She, didn't, she hadn't found Jesus, didn't know Jesus, but she's looking for him. Well, after she'd gone a few times, the next time she went, uh, the pastor, the minister there came up to her, and he said, this is, this is really awkward, and I feel terrible about this, but it would really be better if you didn't keep coming. And, and she said, well, why is this? He said, well, 
the other women here don't, don't feel comfortable with your being here. And if you keep coming, some of them aren't going to come. And so she said to the man, if I can't come here to learn about Jesus, where then should I go? And the man had no answer for her. In God's kindness to her, she left the church, and she was actually able to find the truth through someone at the Salvation Army, and that person led her to Christ. Sadly, and that sounds distant and terrible, but there are churches and Christian cultures that either explicitly or implicitly still treat people like this. People that go searching, and at some level, our expectation is that you'll present some level of acceptability, cultural presentation, but before you come. And brothers and sisters, first, our church needs to be a place of welcome, like Jesus' life and ministry were to all people. People accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton because of who he hangs out with. I mean, ironically enough, he's here to save sinners, and he's hanging out with sinners, very notorious sinners. But the other thing is that if you're here this morning, there's a part of you that, I mean, if we're just being real, doesn't feel like you really fit in here, that you belong here. It's true, there are churches and cultures that make it very difficult, but Jesus always welcomes sinners who come to him. The grace of God is greater than any sin. And if you come here, you will find people of all sorts, some of us who have our act slightly together, and some who are just a mess. But one thing that's true of everyone here is that we are all sinners in need of the grace of God. We all come equally in need of God's grace, equally apart from God, apart from his grace, and equally in Christ, in his grace. We're all sinners desperately in need of God's grace to transform us by the blood of his son, Jesus. So let's take a moment now and we'll respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, I thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who offers salvation to anyone who comes to him. And God, I pray for those here this morning, some of whom are questioning and searching. God, I pray that you'll open their eyes to see that he is their hope. And God, I pray for, for those of us who know him, that you will make us welcoming people like he is welcoming. And God, I pray for brothers and sisters here who are struggling with doubt. God, could you save them? God, you, have you intervened in their life? God, I pray that you will give them faith in Christ, give them eyes to see that he is their hope. And God, I pray that you will comfort them, 
even as one of your great prophets, John doubted. God, many of your children have doubted. And, and so, God, I pray that you will give them hope in Christ in the midst of their doubt. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close by singing in just a moment. Uh, and as you're here, if there's any way that we could uh, offer hope to you or, or speak with you or pray with you, we would love to do that. I'll be here at the front. If God maybe is, is leading you to consider becoming a part of this congregation, we'd love to talk, to talk further about that or baptism or really any way the Lord is dealing with your heart. Would you see him, please? We'll sing together, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. There of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight, angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy. Whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Raising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Thanks for joining us this worship uh, for this morning for worship as you go now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen have a wonderful day